0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Bill Sandbrook, who's the CEO of U.S. Concrete. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Uh, you're welcome, McCool. Glad to be here. Uh, uh,
0: thank you. you know, before we talk about leadership, I was wondering if we could speak about your early years uh, could you tell me a little bit about who were your role models when you were growing up and what did you learn from them?
1: Uh, sure. My, I would characterize my father as my role model, and he was in the cement industry, and he was on the operations side. He wasn't on the finance side, wasn't on the sales side. Uh, he was an operational um, executive who started early in his career in college working in cement plants and as he was promoted, he was transferred to to locations with increased responsibility in cement plants around the country. And his uh, growing up, watching him growing up myself in the cement industry, and watching his his work ethic, his commitment to performance, his commitment to the safety of his employees, to the His commitment to his responsibilities for which he was receiving pay from his employer and to the way he he treated um, subordinates, peers, and superiors respectfully, that it had a a lasting impression on me, and I didn't realize it at the time, because when you're a child or you're a teenager, you don't realize the impressions that these things are, are are making on you until later in life when you start reflecting on the leader that you want to be and you start a little bit of self reflection and analysis in trying to figure out why and why you make the decisions you do or 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 why you look at life or your or your work in a certain way, you you then reflect and realize where you got got it from. So I didn't realize it at the time, but now as I'm approaching the the latter years of my career, and look back to what what really shaped me early before any formal education. I would say was my father.
0: Uh, that's so uh, wonderful to hear. Do any memories stand out in your mind of things that you saw him do as a as a father and as a leader that that uh, still have a lasting impression on you?
1: Uh, mostly, the way he insisted on taking care of his. Employees, both from a, a, both as as his responsibilities as a manager in keeping them safe at work, and when certain people fell on hard times that worked for him, his generosity in personally helping them through a difficult financial or emotional period of their life. Uh, when none of that was required, other than that, other than who he was or who he is.
0: That, that, that's wonderful. That's great to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the um, and, and as you grew up, you went to school, uh, and I think you went to school to the uh, U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And after that, you spent thirteen years in the U.S. Army. And I was wondering, uh, you know, what some of the key lessons were that you learned about leadership during your military career? Are there any examples that stand out uh, from that phase of your life?
1: Well, it's interesting. You you learn discipline, first of all. And then you learn learn the ability to make decisions without perfect information. And you're you're required to make those decisions. So you you synthesize as much information as, as is possible to obtain and then you are forced to make a decision. You you don't have the luxury in the military of time to make critical decisions, so you you can't order another study, you can't bring in another consultant to help you think through something. You have you have subordinates that you can take advice from, you have leaders that you can take advice from, but in the end in in a very short amount of time you have to make life life-changing or life potential-altering decisions, both at the tactical and strategic level. And there were there are many times in in many exercises that you that those type of, of critical thought processes had to be undertaken. And the more you do that, the more comfortable you are in 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 decision making. And I, I think the military for young officers and mid-grade and senior officers is. You come out of that experience with that skill set deeply ingrained in how you approach decision making in your civilian career or in your professional career where where i where I am now um, that I think that is the biggest takeaway from my military career a critical ability to analyze and make decisions
0: now, is there any decision that you made under uh... The difficult circumstances or with, as you said with imperfect or incomplete information that stands out in your mind? as
1: Well, one that's my military experience now is pretty far in the rearview mirror, mirror having having left in 1992 but a direct application of those military lessons was in, in 9-11 on uh, the day after on September 12, 2001 when I was a, a young executive in a con, uh, heavy materials company north of New York City decided very quickly to offer assistance at Ground Zero and bring a significant amount of, of heavy equipment to bear and and human resources on the, the very next morning, less than 24 hours later, and sought out sought out. Uh, approval from governmental authorities to deploy that equipment onto Ground Zero and assist in in the search and rescue and initial response, and and I and it did that without any authority from my bosses. That my my chain of command was in Washington D.C. I was in in downstate New York, and I just assembled I assembled that equipment and that personnel pack. Got the uh, got the permission from the, from the mayor to come down to Ground Zero and then brought all that equipment, didn't worry about how to pay for it, didn't worry about who was going to pay for it, didn't worry about liability, didn't worry about union affiliations, and had a mission to do and accomplished that mission uh, with imperfect information and, and, frankly, not proper approval authority because I was able to do that through that military experience.
0: And and eventually, when your uh, uh, your, your supervisors found out, uh, what was their response?
1: Well, it, it, I would say it wasn't really a supervisor. I mean, I was I was president CEO of a of a of a mid sized company that probably had revenues of about four hundred million dollars. So my I my see. superior would have been the North American CEO. I, I was the New York New Jersey CEO. So I want to categorize. It's just not like sure. my, the next line operating manager. It was, I was at a significant level. He was at a significant level and they supported my decision, but they, they really didn't have any way not to. I mean, it was a national crisis and they were really unable to show any criticism at all. And they showed tremendous support in the end. And well, not just in the end, they showed tremendous support of my efforts. We stayed down there three to four days from September 12th and that Tuesday—well, from Wednesday until Saturday, and then uh, redeployed back because our equipment was too big for the job. But they, they supported the decision. But the, my, my point in that is I wasn't paralyzed by, let me go get the proper, a proper approval authority. Let me go get proper, proper legal representation. Let me get proper waivers from all my men that I'm bringing down into, the, into a, a, a potentially precarious situation. Uh I wasn't paralyzed by all the things that tend to paralyze business leaders these days.
0: And and how would you say that experience shaped you as a leader?
1: Uh, well, uh how did that shape me as a leader? I, I think that leadership was already there. I I, I think uh I, I think it I don't think it changed me as a leader. It 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 changed me as a person on seeing something as devastating firsthand, um, but it, in my, in, I don't know if it changed me as a leader. I think it helped younger, uh, younger managers in my company see what a, a real leader can do rather than how it changed me. I think I was already at that stage at that point.
0: What led you to uh, join U.S. Concrete as its CEO? Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the situation in the company uh, and the industry at the time when you decided to
1: join? Sure. Uh, pr- just prior to joining US Concrete, I was a very senior executive with a multinational heavy building products company uh, called CRH, headquartered in, in Dublin, Ireland. I had a very large p responsibility, over 20,000 employees, and a $5 billion revenue line at, at the peak of the cycle back uh, just a few years before. And that that had declined somewhat with the level of construction, and you know I I, I face the I face the reality that that the, the multinational material companies that are owned by are are domiciled in countries outside the U.S. that their CEO primarily and overwhelmingly is of the nationality of the domiciled country, and there aren't that many publicly traded heavy material companies in in the world, let alone on the New York Stock Exchange or on the NASDAQ, and only a handful of domestic-based companies uh, that are headquartered in the U.S. And I was offered the opportunity to come to U.S. Concrete as the CEO. It had emerged from bankruptcy in 2010, a year before I was offered the position. A new board was seated, and the new board went to search for a CEO that uh, could extract the maximum amount of value for the existing shareholders, which were now the debt holders. And the board wasn't sure at the time that if they would uh, were going to liquidate or grow the company. And I had no intention of ever liquidating the company. I, I thought that uh, the assets were good. The underlying economy had bottomed out. I had been in the industry over 20 years. And I had confidence in my abilities that I could resurrect this company with, with the proper strategy, the proper leadership, and then with an economy that could be turning around. And so I, I took a significant pay cut, took, some, took a lot of equity at risk, and did not want to end up at the end of my career saying I had the opportunity to be a public company CEO and I turned it down because I was afraid. And I didn't want to get to that point and never know that answer. I would have rather taken this job and failed either from my, because of my own inabilities or because of, of the external economic environment. I would have rather failed at it and having given up a certain job than having never tried it and never known if I could do it. So the challenge ultimately is what a, a, a challenge based on some fundamental facts that I thought uh, would, would uh, play in my favor. The combination of those made me uh, change to this company, and then and then start resurrecting it from a, a very di- distressed situation in 2011.
0: How did you go about uh, analyzing the situation and uh, developing your turnaround strategy for U.S. Concrete?
1: In in a, a very short answer for that is I spent most of my first 90 days out in the operations and in the field, listening to my listening mostly to my employees, but also listening to customers and uh, and hearing and watching and listening and then evaluating after much listening what the steps were that needed to be undertaken. And at, at the same time was making minor small improvements in shifting decision making from the corporate level into a more decentralized model our business is a localized model ready mixed concrete does not travel far it only travels you know a couple miles 50 miles in west texas it travels 10 miles in manhattan it's perishable it lasts 2 hours so it's a local business model and you have to you have to understand the local dynamics at play the local competitive environment the local raw material situation, uh, the lo- local permitting issues, local traffic. And you can't you can't undertake fixing a company from preconceived notions of what needs to be fixed if you haven't walked in your employee's shoes or in your customer's shoes. So I spent most of my first three months listening and formulating a plan as I went. And I've said this before in, in a number of occasions, that you really are kidding yourself, and you're kidding the, the company, and you're kidding your board of directors if you think you can come in, give them a plan to turn around a company that you know nothing about, and you have to get out there and see it and feel it and touch it before you can come in with, with a plan that might have worked for you in a different environment but might not work there. So you might be solving the wrong problems with the wrong tools unless you really are a good listener
0: and as you listen to your employees uh what did you uh what could you tell of their morale and how how did you go about rebuilding morale after the bankruptcy and getting their buy-in uh to to the turnaround strategy
1: well the morale was low as you have have inferred and just by the fact that i was in the field listening to them they hadn't seen senior-level management from headquarters in, in many months or years. They had not been listened to. In fact, they were so defeated, they, they had, it was so centralized that they had to go for approval at the corporate level, to the corporate level, for minor operational decisions. Part of it was driven because of a cash crunch at the corporate level, but it was, it was so minutely controlled that individuals had lost their initiative and they had lost, ultimately had lost responsibility for the decisions they were making because they weren't allowed to make decisions. And when, once you've, you've given away the responsibility to decision making to the higher headquarters, then you have then you have a team that's not invested in the in the ultimate outcome anymore because they were never part of the decision to begin with. And so the very first thing to turn around with morale was to reengage them that they needed to be part of the solution. Of, of the of turning the company around. People at, at, in, their, in their core want to be part of something successful. People don't want to get up every day and be on a losing team. I don't want to just go into losing and winning because it's overly simplistic, but the essence is you want to get up every day and be energized about going to something you believe in. So you have to make them believe in it. The very first way to make them believe in it is to make them feel they're part of it. The very first way to make them feel part of it is to make them feel that that their experience gained over maybe 20, 30, 40 years that 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 their career was worth something that their that their opinions were worth something after working at it for so long. And you do that at the lowest levels, you do that with a with an equipment operator, you do it with a a plant operator, you do it with a plant foreman, you do it with a plant manager and and they and over time they they buy into that and that that philosophy has worked for me in in my in my last company, that uh, that people want to be engaged and want to be part of something that they can feel proud of, and I needed to make them feel proud of it again, and then they had to have confidence in me. So while they' while I'm listening to them and I ask I, I ask the right questions, and they look at my background and they they start being confident in me, and the 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 hard part of it is you can't be everywhere at once so you, you need to you need to make them you need to be you need to spend all your time and all your waking hours out there it's very 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 time consuming but it has to be done
0: what did you do to win their trust
1: um i tr- i trusted them i i almost in, invariably trusted them without them having to earn it at first I trusted them, and I trusted in their experience. For instance, they, they knew that certain equipment needed to be fixed, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't get it fixed because they, they wouldn't even ask to fix it because they knew headquarters would, would turn them down. But they knew through that that their plant was running inefficiently and their costs were twice as high as they needed to be. So I told them they did not have to ask me for approval for, to spend money. And I said, and you will know when you reach a certain level. And you will feel it in your gut that you need to ask me for permission. Until you feel that level, I trust you. So not only did not only did I earn their trust, I proved that I trusted them by giving that them that authority right off the bat. I didn't make I didn't make them I didn't have to have me earn, or have them earn my trust. I, I needed to do it the other way. So I gave them my trust immediately, which they reciprocated. Wonderful. And then, and then they can see. Then I started laying out a little bit more detail what our plans were, what we were going to do differently, what the strategy was going to be, and we were going to take the offense. We weren't going to be on the defense anymore. We weren't selling any more plants. We weren't. Well, we were going to, we were going to exit some businesses, redeploy that capital, and reinvest in the business for the first time. I gave them, I, I gave them the ability to earn bonuses again. I reinstated the four oh one K matching contribution. There were tangible things I gave them in small doses to to see that they were that we were making progress and that I was willing to share the the value of that progress with them.
0: So so when you took over, I think the stock price for US concrete was two dollars if I'm not mistaken. And
1: well when I when I took over the day I started it was six. Six dollars. And then it, it dropped until it dropped over the next four months. To two, to two, because you can't turn a battleship in a day or two, because right. we work off a backlog, so our contracts were kind of fixed, and our costs were fixed in the short term. So it went from six to two, so the beginning of July, of, uh, beginning of January 2012, it was about two, and I think we had a, a good day-to-day in the market, actually, and I think we closed, and today we closed at $73.35.
0: So so, it's quite a huge turnaround, and I was wondering, uh what do you think are the key factors that led to this
1: happening uh, well, getting employee getting employee buy-in using their collect collective wisdom gained over all their years' experience and and harvesting that and motivating that through good leadership not only by my from myself but from myself to my next level managers because I can't be everywhere all the time, so I needed a a good, a a good cadre of like-minded individuals who who shared my vision for for leadership and a performance culture, and a and a, and a work environment that was supportive of each other. Um. So, that and then then the, the strategy shift focusing on uh, our, our product is a is looked at by the investment community. As a as a, a commoditized low barrier to entry, low margin product set, and I had to develop a strategy to refute that. Instituted a strategy to consolidate ready mix markets in urban areas of the country with with hard op, with very difficult operating conditions, unionized uh, environments, heavy traffic congestion, uh, heavy environmental regulations, where. I could get a premium for our product and build defensible positions and then, uh, and then went about executing that strategy relentlessly over the next five years, piece by piece by piece, and have, have, have brought the entire team with me and uh, a very a very good group of investors in our shareholder base with top, the top-level mutual funds uh, and money managers in the country investing in, in our in our overall strategy and execution of that strategy.
0: Now, as you look to the future, where do you see the biggest opportunities and the biggest risks for U.S. concrete?
1: Well, the biggest opportunities are replicating our model in other urban areas of the country where we can get our competitive advantages through the, the areas that I previously mentioned. That's our biggest opportunity to expand outside our four main regions now. Uh, we intend to do that in a measured way. Uh, the biggest risks, you know it's a cyclical business. So calling the cycle and making sure that uh, that our, our leverage is acceptable at uh, you know at the transition to a, a little bit slower rate of growth um, in a cyclical business, we have to be mindful of that and trying to predict that you know a, a year or eighteen months ahead. So I don't see that on the horizon right now, but there will be a a slowdown from the current growth rates that we're experiencing. And so the the risk is trying to find that uh, early before it turns.
0: If you look back on your leadership journey, uh, which would you say has been your greatest leadership challenge? And what did you learn from overcoming it?
1: Greatest leadership challenge. Well, you know that that started. Boy, that that one goes all the way back to probably when I was a young lieutenant in my first assignment in Germany, and this would have been in 1980. And the army was broke at that time. It, nobody wanted to serve. It wasn't a prestigious job. The 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 caliber and quality of the soldiers coming out of Vietnam were were much less than they are now. There was a big drug problem. There was big alcohol problems. As a 22-year-old lieutenant in Germany, having a, a, a bunch of, a, a, a lot of, of of soldiers that I had to figure out a way to to improve, to, to operate as a cohesive unit um, with, with 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 individuals that were 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 tough individuals. It was a much it was not the professional army that we have now. And to be able to wrestle with that and develop strategies as a very young officer to bring that that group of of, of I, I don't know I I hate I don't want to say anything bad about them but to to bring that that very diverse group of of soldiers into a well disciplined cohesive drug free fighting unit at 22 years old, you, and, and you're in a real-life experience on the east-west German border in a cavalry platoon with, with tanks and heavy equipment and dangerous operating conditions, uh, and to be able to look back and saying I turned that unit around, that was a very unique challenge at a very early age. Uh, and I did that much the same way, looked for the good in people, led by example, coached was tough when I needed to be, was soft when I needed to be. Uh, That was a a very good grounding in basic leadership 101.
0: So over the years, I'm sure you've met uh, lots of leaders in different contexts. Uh, I wonder what you think separates leaders who succeed from those who don't.
1: One, (laughs) the ones who truly succeed and... There, there's going to be various definitions of success but the ones who truly succeed are truly passionate about their responsibilities to the various constituencies that they interact with By that um, I mean to their employees, to their to their shareholders, to the external, community, being their customers, stakeholders in our business, you know, the neighbor, drivers are stakeholders. We have, I have 1,700 trucks on the road every day. Those 1,700 trucks need to be responsible and safe drivers on the road. Um, but but the best leaders take those responsibilities extremely seriously and and serve those constituencies, with a general level of enthusiasm to satisfy each individual stakeholder's needs, um, and and other characteristics would be they need to be selfless. They need to put the the stakeholders' interests above their 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 own. Um, they have to be empathetic. Um, they they should they should have an ego that is only driven through a performance culture that has nothing to do with pats on the back for themselves. They can't have a superiority complex. Um, They have to be decisive. They have have to be a leader that people want to follow. They need true leaders, and the ones that are most successful, need to be people that they would want to work for if, if they were working for somebody. And if they can look in the mirror at the end of the career and say they've satisfied those criteria, those are successful leaders.
0: That's a wonderful answer. And one last question. How do you define success?
1: I, I define success as that upon my retirement, that I'll be able to look in the mirror and said, I gave that everything I had. And I hope I made people's lives better. I hope because my companies were successful, that people had a better retirement because they had bigger bonuses because they earned it, because their their stock appreciated and they could send their kids to college debt free instead of taking instead of taking on a, a ton of student loans. That that the people really enjoyed coming to work and working for me. Um, if I if I can have those and and it has nothing to do about money. If I can if I can say that. And and say that in all honesty by looking in the mirror, I've had a great career.
0: Bill, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton.
1: You're very welcome, Miguel. I enjoyed the conversation. Very good questions.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.